So Genesis chapter 2, 18 to 25 says this. The Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a suitable, suitable helper for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to man to see what he would name them. Whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man, man's ribs and then closed up the, pl the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She should be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. So Ephesians chapter 5 and reading verses 21 to 33 and uh, it's entitled in the NIV Instructions for Christian Households. Submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the saviour. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also should wives Wives submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by washing her with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church, without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this same way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated their own body, but they feed and care for their body, just as Christ does the church, for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and his mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself, and the wife must respect her husband. Let's just pray as Nick comes up. Lord, thank you for your word and thank you for those truths that it speaks. I just pray, pray now as Nick comes up that uh, you'll give him his, your, his words. So you'll give him your words, Lord. And uh, he, can, he can speak to us, but we will hear you speaking to us through him. Yeah, we pray these things this morning. Amen. Nick, over to you. There we go. This is one of those mornings where we maybe take you to all kind of places you don't want to go. Um, you've had, uh, we've had some good fun. Thank you. Um, thank you, Anna. Thank you, Sarah. Um, I'm not saying this won't be fun. Um, maybe it will be fun. Billy, you got my PowerPoint. We've been looking at the Ten Commandments and we're trying to apply them in, a, in the New Testament era. Um, and I think one of the things we begin to see, next slide, is that morality and reality are intrinsically linked. Morality and reality are intrinsically linked. In other words, morality is never arbitrary. 
God doesn't choose a, a set of commands for you because he thinks, oh, this will be good. This will make life interesting for them, or this will make life hard for them, or I'm a bit of a killjoy. I don't want them to do that. God gives you commandments because they reflect reality. So the reality is that there is only one good, real God who has created all things and has made us for a loving relationship with himself. And so morality is to love that God with all your heart, your soul, with all your mind. It's to have him as the God above all others. It's uh, not to make any images of him because they distort him and not to misuse his name. In other words, morality is just behavior that responds with love to the reality that there is a one loving God who loves you. Do you get that? And the reality, the other half of that reality is that the Lord has created human beings, you and I, to live in community, to live in love with each other. And so morality is simply the behavior that responds with love to our, um, to our neighbor, to our fellow human beings. If you need the notes on the witness hills, I always get to this point and forget about it. Um, and they're there if you need them. So morality is just living um, appropriately to the reality that God is and that God has made. We've also seen, seen along the way, I think, that to act immorally, um, to sin, yes, it's, it's offensive to God, but sin is always inherently self-harm. For that reason, for that same reason that morality is just reflecting reality, it's how to live best with the reality that we actually live in, then sin... To, to disobey God is inherently self-harm. It, will, it is wounding yourself, as well as being inherently unloving either to God or to um, the people around you or, or both. And we talked a bit on Tuesday in, in devotions um, that sin um, or an act of sin feels like release. Um, so often an act of sin feels like release, but it's actually taking you deeper into bondage. So sin always has this addictive element to it. Unlike any addiction, sin feels, feels good in the moment. So you have a little gossip. You tell something, somebody something they haven't heard before. It feels great. You have a quick drink. Calm your nerves. You have a sexual thrill. You have an impulse buy. Or you kind of close the door and you go home, close the door, and you go, phew, all those momentary things, you get a momentary hit, but it's binding. Sin is always binding. So the, 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 that gossip is, is always makes you more addicted to, to information. The, uh, the, the drink is potentially addictive unless you keep it to moderation, the sexual thrill. The same, the impulse buy. That need to be away from everybody else. So today we're looking at the seventh commandment. We're looking at, it's very simple, commandment you shall not commit adultery i came really really close to sending um, a bible study to the uh, the home group leaders entitled you shall commit adultery um it was a serious typo on, on my part but managed to spot it just in time um but the command is, is very simple uh, it's there in exodus 20 if you if you want to look it up but it's so simple i think you can remember it in your mind you shall not commit adultery which is an interesting way to put it, isn't it? Because it assumes that they know what marriage is. And they should do, because marriage has been there um, since Genesis 2. 
And so I think today what I want to major on is just spend some time looking at uh, what is marriage. What is marriage? Because I think uh, the command assumes some background knowledge, and I'm not sure that background knowledge is there anymore. And I want to tell you from the Bible what marriage is. And there they are. That's, that's the bulk of the talk there in front of you. Um, but uh, give me a few minutes to spell that out to you. Marriage is a covenant. It's a lifelong covenant between a man and a woman. It's a pact. It's there, right in that initial statement in Genesis 2. And we'll see in a moment um, that that Genesis 2 statement is not only reiterated by Paul in Ephesians, it's reiterated by Jesus. Um, so that Genesis 2 command is, is not an Old Testament command that's disappeared. Um, it's an Old Testament command that's been reiterated. It's fundamental um, to all life. And it's there in that statement. A man will leave his father and his mother, he's united to his wife, and they become one flesh. There's a union there that reflects their creation. So I've, I've heard this said, I don't know whether you find this helpful or offensive, um, but somebody said a man is a body looking for his missing rib. And a woman is a rib looking for her missing body. And there's some kind of truth in there some, somewhere. Unless, unless you have the happy and profound gift of singleness, both women and men then have a, have a hunger to be a complete, to be completed in and with and by a member of, of the opposite sex. And so marriage is, um, is this union. And around that union is a pact, a, a promise of, of faithfulness um, and exclusivity. So actually when the Israelites wandered away from God, the prophet Malachi um, said to them, you know, they were wondering, the Israelites were wondering, well, what have we done wrong? Why has God turned against us? They, they said, uh, Malachi says to them, you ask why? It's because the Lord is, with, is the witness between you and the wife of your youth. You've been unfaithful to her, though she's your partner, the wife of your marriage covenant. So all these things you'll find as we go through them, they all kind of overlap. Uh, marriage is this union, but around this union is a, is a pact, a promise, um, a, a binding um, arrangement. So marriage is a covenant. It's a contract, but a marriage is also a man and a woman joined by God. It's a, it's a union created by God. And that sounds very simple on the outset, but it's actually very profound, and I'm not sure I can explain it to you. So when Jesus is asked about divorce, Pharisees come to him and test him. They say, can a man divorce his wife for any and every reason? And he says, haven't you heard? That at the beginning, the creator made the male and female and he said, for this reason, the man will leave his mother, father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they're no longer two. This is Jesus speaking, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. And it's so familiar um, from, the, from the marriage service to us that we don't realize how profound it is. Why then, they asked, did Moses command that a man give his wife a certificate of divorce and send her away? And Jesus replied, Moses permitted you to divorce because your hearts were hard. But it wasn't that way from the beginning. I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another woman, commits adultery. 
So now, as we said, Jesus here is pulling out that, that, uh, that example, that reality that uh, has existed since creation back in Genesis 2. And he's applying it to his hearers around him. Marriage is one man, one woman. They come together and they become, in some strange way, they become one flesh. They're united. So in the marriage ceremony, when you get married, something changes in, in God's eyes. And in the man and the woman, they become one flesh. Marriage is not just then a, a, a piece of paper. God has done something. God, in a, in a strange way, in a mystical way, I think I would have to say, that I can't explain to you, but when you get married, God has joined you together. And in God's eyes, you're one flesh and not two. So it's not just, a, not just you came together and you wrote your names and it's a contract. And then later on you could say, I don't like this contract. Something much more profound has happened and you've been bound together. By God, Jesus says. You've been made one flesh by God. And therefore it is, it is an incredibly profound and, and an awful thing when that one flesh union uh, comes to an end for whatever reason. And so Moses, they say, what about Moses? And Jesus says to them, well, Moses was just it's giving a certificate of fraud. It was a damage limitation exercise. And actually it was designed to protect the woman from an accusation because if the man just sent her away, then she's just, um, without a certificate of divorce, then she's just left being assumed she's, she's an adulteress. The intention is not to give the guys, give the men a, a get out of jail free card. But if something's been joined by God, then woe betide those who break it. So marriage is a covenant, it's a union, it's a public commitment. I think it has to be a public commitment. You see this throughout scripture, although it's not commanded anywhere, I think you see it um, in scripture. Something changes in God's eyes, we said, when you get married, but it's important as well that something changes in the community's eyes. When you get married, there's a change of, uh, uh, you have a change of status in your community. So the man and the woman, they're now allowed to sleep with each other. No one else is allowed to have sex with them. They form a new family unit. And so it's appropriate for them now to sleep together um, and to have children and raise children. So it's important that the marriage contract is witnessed. That's the contract, contract aspect to it, and because it's, it's a binding covenant. But it's important also that it's public. So that the rest of the community, they know that the status of these two people has changed. What was off limits for them before, living and sleeping together, is now acceptable. What was acceptable in the community? It's not acceptable for any men or women to kind of float with other of those parties now because their status has changed. They're married. They're off limits. We find that pattern in the Bible. Marriage is more than just sex. People sometimes say, well, marriage and, and sex are the same thing. Um, when you, get, uh, you have sex with somebody, you're, you're effectively married. It's not true, biblically. And I'll just give you one example for this. We could go other places. But you remember Jesus meets the woman by the well in the middle of the day in, in Sychar? And he, he says to her, they're having a bit of back and forth conversation, uh, and he says to her, go and call your husband and come back. And she says, I have no husband. 
And Jesus says to her, you're right. You're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is you've had five husbands. And the man you have, the man you now have, is not your husband. What you've said is quite true. So notice that what Jesus says. The sixth man, we're assuming she, she has him. We're assuming they're living together. Uh, it's a sexual relationship, but Jesus said he's not. It's not her husband. And the fact that they're living together has not made him her husband. It's not a marriage. It doesn't have these other aspects of a marriage around it. They've not made it binding and public. Done before God. But sex is, of course, uh, key pretty much to marriage. It's, um, marriage will nearly always be e- expressed in um, the sexual intercourse, unless there are particular reasons that you get married really late in life or there's some other, other reason. And sexual intercourse is designed to be this physical expression of the one flesh union. It's designed to be addictive. It's designed to addict a husband and wife in a, in a relationship with each other. So normally there's going to be um, a sexual component of marriage. Interestingly, the, the Corinthians uh, church, this church which is kind of bubbling and growing and uh, going wrong in all kinds of different directions, they, they, they write to Paul, the Apostle Paul, and they say, uh, he says to them, now, for the matters you wrote about, quotes, it's good for a man to not have sexual relations with a woman. So they throw that out to him, Paul, surely, you know, Jesus is coming soon, it's better just, you know, stay away from sex altogether. He says, no, he says, since sexual immorality is occurring, each man should have sexual relations with his own wife and each woman with her own husband. It's, it's right. And he says the husband should fulfill his marital duty to his wife and likewise the, likewise the wife to her husband. The wife doesn't have authority over her own body but yields it to her husband. In the same way, the husband doesn't have authority over his own body but yields it to his wife. Don't deprive each other except perhaps by mutual consent for a time so that you may devote yourselves to prayer, but then come together again so that Satan will not tempt you because of your lack of self-control. It's lots of practical wisdom, isn't, isn't there, in that? Should be regular um, sex where, within a marriage. Sex is designed to superglue two people together. That, that's what it's designed for. So solo sex... You know what I'm getting at, but I just really hate the word. I don't really even really want to use it. It's like supergluing yourself to your phone or your TV or whatever it is you're using. It's not going to help you in your current or future marriage because at some point you're going to have to unsuperglue yourself from that relationship which you've created. It will spoil future relationships. Sex outside of marriage is like supergluing hands with somebody else. And then wondering why you can't give up that relationship when you feel the time has come. Because sex outside marriage, there's no contract. Nobody's bound to it. So the one part that can just say, well, I walk away. And then it feels like you've superglued your hand to somebody else and you've had to pull them apart. Um, and inevitably, kind of like some skin comes off and it's raw. And that's why you need a skin graft when it falls apart. Sex is the expression of marriage, but it needs the protection of marriage. Sex is an incredibly vulnerable thing, and it needs 
be within the boundaries of marriage and it needs to be protected by it. A marriage paid in so far. This is fun, isn't it? But it's important. Marriage is a picture of Christ and the church. You read that from Ephesians 5. A passage that speaks for itself. Marriage is a picture of the relationship between Jesus and his church. The husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church. As the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in, in everything. Just doesn't go down well, does it? But how do we change it then? If we change it, then we start to... Marriage is no longer a picture of, of Christ in the church. And do you really want to change the picture of, of, of Christ in the church? Do you want Christ to be this all-giving, always forgiving, always proactive, um, giver of love, love unto death, love into a cross? Now that's what husbands should be. And you as a church member... It's your ideal to kind of submit to Christ. Let him be Lord. Let him control. Because you know that's what's best for you. It's the picture of what, what wives should do. Critically, and this is really all I'm going to say about this this morning, is that both those roles have to be voluntary. They cannot be enforced. So the husband is not to be a, a giver, um, who needs to be nagged into giving. That's a failure uh, on the husband's part. And the wife, it says, should submit, but it has to be voluntary. It cannot be enforced. If it's enforced, then that is some kind of, uh, some kind of modern slavery. It has to be willing on, on both parts. But marriage is designed to be a picture of Christ in the church. And if we change it, because we decide it doesn't fit, we don't like it, doesn't fit with the culture, then we, we change that, that picture of, of Christ in the church, which is why I think this um, absolutely still applies, however uncomfortable it might feel for us in this day. And the consummation of this marriage, the Christ and the church marriage, is at the wedding supper of the Lamb. So in Revelation, when Christ comes again, it's a picture uh, of a wedding, or, of the bride is you and me, um, dressed in white and, and we're meeting Jesus and, we, um, and getting married as it were that's the consummation it's a bit like now um, we're, we're betrothed we know him we love him but we haven't seen him face to face so a day is coming when we will sit down and, and there will be like this massive wedding feast and it's going to be amazing Marriage is a picture of heaven as the consummation of a, a, of a marriage, of a betrothal. And a good friend of mine who's a, who's a minister down the road says that heaven has to be better than a thousand orgasms. Yeah. And that's got to be true. 
So marriage is a picture of heaven in the same way the Sabbath is a picture of heaven. Those two things that come out of the garden, okay, they're both pictures of heaven. The Sabbath is a picture of heaven being like the final day at the end of the week when you have rest. It's like, it's like your best rest after you know all your work is done. And that's the picture of the Sabbath. The marriage which is instituted at the same kind of time it is, another pic- it is another picture of heaven. It, it's going to be the getting married and having uh, the best experience um, than, the, than the best experience uh, that marriage or sex could ever give you. One more thing. Marriage is, for the Christian, it should be a partnership in faith. You should marry in the faith, husband and wife. So this was for Israel. They were told repeatedly not to marry people of another religion. It said, don't intermarry with them. Deuteronomy 7. Don't give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your children away from following me to serve other gods. And the Lord's anger will burn against them and they will quickly destroy you. That's what happened to King Solomon. And Paul says this, says, a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives, but if her husband dies, she's free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must be in the Lord. So where you have the freedom that does this, um, this is this call all the way through the Old Testament for the people of Israel to, to marry uh, within, within the faith. And the same call comes out of the New Testament. And there's a wider principle not to be yoked together with unbelievers. Um, Paul says that. Um, and it's not just about marriage, but it, must, it can't be uh, less than about marriage. So there we go. That's marriage. But I want to tell you that Paul says there's something better than marriage. Okay. This next slide. Yeah. Singleness. Singleness. Better than marriage. In a sense. So when people became Christians, so Paul, it's in 1 Corinthians 7, it's a really important chapter. Um, Paul had this principle that people were becoming Christians in all kinds of different situations. Some of them were married, some of them were not married. Um, Some of them would have become Christians and then married to somebody who wasn't a Christian. Or it might have happened the other way around. Um, And Paul's basic principle was stay where you are. Stay in the status that you are. He said to slaves, you can get freedom, then, then have it. But. but he says in the midst of this chapter, I wish that all of you were as I am. But each of you has your own gift from God. One has this gift, another has that. And so in that we learn Paul was single at the time. And he said, I wish that you all could be single. And then you could all be, um, you could all be wholehearted uh, for the Lord. But then he goes on to say one has this gift and another that. So to be happily single, it, is a, it takes a certain kind of gift, certain kind of quality. So singleness, it can be extremely painful. And it can be isolating and it can be really difficult to live as a single person, you know, particularly amongst a community like ours where most people are. Uh, are married, but Paul says, I want you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man's concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife. And his interests are divided. 
An unmarried woman is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord, both in body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I'm saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way, in undivided devotion to the Lord. And I'm sure you will know, in your own experience, some, some <laughs> singles who've been incredibly important um, to you and, and to churches. And I'm sure you can, you can think, without looking too far around you, uh, <coughs> of certain singles who have been... Uh, been a massive blessing to the church either because they've never got married or been widowed early or whatever it might be so briefly then okay on from the fun of marriage to the to the fun of adultery um adultery basically in biblical terms it's immoral to look for sexual thrills anywhere outside of a marriage relationship and a marriage relationship is one man and one woman um publicly committed in a union before god committed for life. Sex before marriage is called sexual immortality. It's a word, porneia, um, in, in the Greek, in the New Testament. So sex, uh, more generally, outside of marriage is called porneia. Sex across marriages that breaks into somebody else's marriage or breaks out of a marriage is called adultery. And very briefly, it's an act of the eye. It starts as an act of the eye. It's not simply the... Uh, the act of, uh, of inappropriate sex in itself. And Jesus said this in Matthew 5, and this is important. You can turn up to it if you want, Matthew 5, 27. You've heard that it was said, don't commit adultery, he said, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustily has already committed adultery with her in his heart. So adultery doesn't require you to have actually had sex with someone, it just it requires you to have imagined someone as being your sexual partner. So he says, if your right eye causes you to stumble, gouge it out and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole party to be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it away. It's better for you to lose one part of your body than for your whole body to go to hell. Yes, it's hyperbole. It's not calling you to cut off your hand, but it would be better for you to go through life handless than to go to hell. That's true, it's technically true. It, and actually it's technically true that you'd be better off being one-eyed in, in life rather than go to eternal punishment. It's an awful thought. Going to a place where it doesn't really matter how, how great the pain is, it's just pain that never stops. So you have to manage what you look at, that's what I'm trying to say. Later on in the book of Matthew, Jesus says, um, the eye is the lamp to the body. If your eyes are healthy, then your whole body will be full of light. But if your eyes are unhealthy, they're looking at the wrong things, your whole body will be full of darkness. So you have to manage what you do with your eyes, really. Adultery, adultery starts with the eye, even if it's a mental eye. And so adultery is something about the eyes, but it's also something about the heart. Jesus says... Um, he said, he was asked about food things at one point. He said, don't you see that whatever goes into your mouth goes into the stomach and out of the body? It's, 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 it's not about what you eat. Religion is not about what you eat. But the things that come out of a person's mouth come from the heart and these defile them. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, 
false testimony, slander, these are what defile a person. But eating with unwashed hands doesn't defile them. So adultery is, is, can be an act of the heart expressed by your eye. That's where it starts. It starts in the heart. It starts with the eye. But beyond that, adultery or sexual immorality involves choosing to be dissatisfied with God's provision for you. And then it involves looking. And as soon as you've looked lustfully, Jesus says, you've stepped across the line. You step to, the line is, is being satisfied um, in your marriage or for this period of time in, in your singleness. And as soon as you've stepped across that line uh, in your mind, Jesus says you've stepped across the line. You said, I'm not satisfied. You've also said when you, when you, when you look in, in a lustful kind of way, you said of that other person that they're an object that I can use that I can consume. So you've demeaned them and you've devalued them and you've robbed them of your personhood. And if you go on beyond that into an actual sexual act, then you've, you've been using the superglue in the wrong place again. So final thing I want to say. Um, adultery is the archetype of stupidity. It is the pinnacle of foolishness. You know my view on the book of Proverbs, that it's Solomon's, Solomon's love letter to his teens before they go off to university. Or his equivalent in, in his day. And there are chapters and chapters in, in Proverbs about, about the foolishness of, uh, of adultery. And in fact, in the early chapters, so Proverbs, Proverbs, 1, to, Proverbs 1 to 9 uh, is kind of like an introduction to the book, and then you get all those little bang, bang, bang um, individual Proverbs one after the other. But chapters 1 to 9 is, is an introduction. Um, and about three of those chapters are about not committing adultery. Adultery is the archetype of stupidity. So Proverbs 6, can a man scoop fire into his lap without his clothes being burnt? Can a man walk on hot coals without his feet being scorched? So is he who sleeps with another man's wife. No one who touches her will go unpunished. So he says, Solomon says, Committing adultery, which we've heard from Jesus, is to be thinking outside your marriage relationship. It's like, it's like tipping a load of hot coals in, in your lap. People don't despise a thief if he steals to satisfy his hunger when he's starving, Proverbs says. Yet if he's caught, he, he'll, he must pay sevenfold still, though it cost him all his wealth of his house. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. Man who commits adultery has no sense. There might be a reason. Are you really poor? And in this current age, they say if, if you steal to kind of feed your kids, it's understandable. It's still wrong. But a man who commits adultery has no sense. There's no, no sense committing adultery. Whoever does so destroys himself. Blows and disgrace are his lot, and his shame will never be wiped away. 
So I want to read you as we finish Proverbs chapter 7, and then we'll this will take a couple of minutes. Just to get you this picture, we've had a picture of what marriage is. And you know, in one sense, marriage is a temporary, temporary arrangement. Ma- marriage is a temporary arrangement until we get to glory. Marriage is a temporary arrangement until we get to our big marriage, um, which, is, which is our marriage um, to Christ. And some of you who've been, been widowed, you will realise marriage was, was a temporary arrangement. When we're in it, we think it's going to last forever. When we, get, when we uh, arrive at it, we say, till death has depart, but we forget that that's a reality. And that's a hard place to be. But this is what Solomon says about adultery, and with this we'll conclude. This is the last slide. He actually contrasts a woman who is called wisdom, who you should really want, with a woman called the adulteress, who is the archetype of stupidity. My son, keep my words and store up my commands within you. Guard, keep my commands and you will live. Guard my teachings as the apple of your eye. So the thing that should be beautiful to you is God's teachings. Bind them on your fingers, write them on the tablet of your heart. Say to wisdom, you are my sister. Wisdom is the woman you want. And to insight, you are my relative. They will keep you from the adulterous woman, from the wayward woman with her seductive words. At the window of my house, I looked down through the lattice and I saw amongst the simple. I noticed among the men, a youth who had no sense. I was looking down out of the window. There were some lads mucking around. One of them was really stupid. He was going down the street near her corner, walking along in the direction of her house. He knew there was somebody there. But he's going there anyway. At twilight, as the day was fading, as the dark of night was setting in, when he can't be looked at, he's just wandering down the road. I'm just wandering. But he knows. Then out came a woman to meet him, dressed like a prostitute and with crafty intent. This could work the other way around. Let's just say that when we get to this point. She's unruly and defiant. Her feet never stay at home. Now in the street, now in the squares, at every corner she looks. She took hold of him and kissed him, and, and with a brazen face she said... Today I'll fulfill my vows, and I've food from my fellowship offering at home. She's fulfilled the vows. In other words, she's, she's been and, and she's made a sacrifice. She's got lots of meat at home. So I came out to meet you. I looked for you, and I found you. I've covered my bed with colorful linens from Egypt. I've got all the candles out. I've perfumed my bed with myrrh and aloes and cinnamon. Come on, let's drink deeply of love till morning. Let's enjoy ourselves with love. My husband's not at home. He's gone on a long journey. He took his purse filled with money and he'll not be back for ages. With persuasive words, she led him astray. She seduced him with her smooth talk. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. All at once, he followed her like an ox going to the slaughter. Like a deer stepping into a noose till an arrow pierces his liver. Just followed this way, whether it was a bloke or a woman, and then the foot's, foot's gone in the noose and he's not seen, and then he's bound and then he's shot. Like a bird darting into a snare, little knowing it's going to cost him his life. Now then, my sons, listen to me. Pay attention to what I say. Don't let your heart turn to her ways, his ways, or stray into 
his or her paths. Many are the victims she's brought down. Her slain are a mighty throng. How depressing. If you're just one of many that this bloke or this girl has had. A throng of people who she's pulled away from their faith and caused them death. Her house is a highway to the grave leading down to the chambers of death. Quick route for your young men and young women in the church to die a horrible spiritual death is to get involved in an inappropriate sexual relationship at the wrong time. Solomon knew it and nothing much has changed. Let me pray. Lord, all of us know the, the pull, of, pull of sex, the pull of sexual fulfillment. It doesn't help us that our society says this is the greatest thing life has on offer. And it presents it in front of us. It says, go find it. Go find your best romantic relationship. doesn't matter what commitments you've had in the past. Go find it. Go get it. It's the best, that you, the best thing that you can ever have. And Lord, we find that pull so strong even though it's not true. You call us into faithful relationships where sex is inside marriage, protected by commitment, joined together by God. It's a high calling which we find really difficult. We ask you today to press your standards upon our hearts. And Lord, in this area of acting like Christ in the church, Lord, let us hear you. You apply, please, Lord, to our hearts, to our church, to our relationships, to our marriages. Don't want to be just another of the fools drawn away and with our foot in the noose before we've realized it. So we just need your help. We need your help, Father God. To where we've got it wrong, put it right. We're just so thankful that Jesus, single man, was perfectly and happily and unsinfully single all his life. Thank you, thank you that his faithfulness to you was, was always perfect. So he knows the temptation and he has died for where we've fallen short. We love you, Lord Jesus, for, for dying in our place, for freeing us from the, uh, from the penalty of the wrong, the wrong decisions, the wrong actions, but also, Lord, the wrong thoughts in our hearts that were adulterous. Thank you, Lord Jesus, you are the perfect sacrifice. Help us live more like you. Amen.